0: Hey, thanks for joining us here at the Vineyard Church Podcast. For more video messages and content, make sure to visit our website, vineyardwheeling.com, or download our app. There's a lot of great resources there that are free and will help you grow closer to God and help you connect with the church. Right now, let's go to our next-gen pastor, Myron Jellison, for this week's message. There's a guy. He's out on the ocean, and he's in a ship, and his ship starts to sink. But luckily... He's got a dinghy, one of those little lifeboats, you know, he can get in and inflates it and has a motor, but the motor doesn't work. So he's out there all alone in the vast ocean all by himself and he cries out to God. And he says, God, I need you to save me. And he's got this deep belief that God is going to save him from his circumstance out here in this dinghy on the ocean. A couple of days pass, nothing happens. He grows frustrated, he starts to doubt and all of a sudden a fishing boat comes by, one of the big crab boats with big claws and nets and they pick up the baskets and all that. And they say, hey, we're here, man. We can help you. Come on, get on our boat. And the guy says, no, I'm good. My God's going to save me. I got this belief he's going to save me. And the fishing crew is like, man, like, do we have an ethical responsibility to grab this guy? Like, we can't just leave him here? So the fishing boat finally, the guy convinces him, says God's going to save him, so they leave. A few more days pass, and the guy's getting really hungry, and he's really starting to doubt and question. God, are you going to save me? I believe you're going to save me. Cruise ship rolls up, huge cruise line, party up on the deck and comes up by the dinghy and the, everyone on the side is like, hey, come here. They throw him like a line and a ladder and he's like, no, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. My God's gonna save me. And the cruise ship, everyone's perplexed. that's watching this go down and eventually the cruise ship just goes on. He's still in his dinghy waiting. Three, four, five more days go by and you hear the helicopter coming. And it's a U.S. Coast Guard helicopter. They must have got the call on search and rescue, and they found him, and they lowered down the basket, and they're going to get him out of the dinghy and save him. And he's like, no, my God is going to save me. I believe that my God is going to save me. And the Coast Guard's like, oh, my gosh, like, this is what we do. We protect the border, and we also save people out in the ocean. Like, we got to take this guy. But he convinces him, says, no, my God's going to save me. So the Coast Guard leaves him, and the end of the story is the guy dies of starvation and dehydration in his dinghy, waiting for his God to save him. He goes up to heaven and he meets God and he's there and has this conversation. And the guy's mad. He's like, God, why didn't you save me? And God looks at him and says, you fool, I sent you a boat. I sent you a cruise ship. I even sent you the US Coast Guard and you denied it. Now that's kind of a funny, weird story, but I think we treat God that way sometimes. The guy in the dinghy was waiting for the Bifrost. You guys ever watch Thor? You know, the Bifrost, the Rainbow Road, and there's this thing at the end of the Rainbow Road that can teleport and push Thor and the people anywhere they want to go in the universe. And if Thor puts out his hammer, this beam just grabs him and sucks him back to Asgard, his hometown. It's kind of like alien abduction, right? Like this little beam comes down and just sucks him him up and takes him where he wants to go. And the guy in the dinghy had that mindset of, God, this is the way I want you to save me. It wasn't just God's going to save me, but you got to do it in my way. You got to do it in the way that I'm thinking. You got to do it under my conditions. And there were three opportunities that God used other people, in another avenue, another way to answer his desire or his prayer. But the man missed it because he was so prideful and arrogant and selfish, wanting God to do it his way in his sign. And sometimes we treat God this way where we got a trial, a tribulation, a suffering, or something going on in our life. We're asking for a prayer or deliverance, and God show up, and we want the power of God in our life. And maybe it happens, but we justify it away, or we explain it away, or we excuse it away, and we don't really see the power of God alive and moving around us for what we're asking for. So I start there to give us an illustration, and we'll tie that in a little bit. But we're going to be in the uh, book of Mark, chapter 9. We're going through this story of Jesus through the book of Mark, and we're in chapter 9. So if you want to get to your Bible, we'll start at the very beginning of chapter 9, or chapter nine verse 1. And so there's two stories I want to tie together. There, there's one where there's it's this weird story where Jesus is transfigured on a mountain, and, and we'll get there. It's kind of this weird story, but if it stood alone, it might be a little weird. But I want to go down a little bit farther and look at a miracle that he's about to do and tie these two together, and we can see uh, something profound. And I think we'll see something very encouraging. And I hope this is encouraging for you. It's encouraging for me. Because even in our doubts, even in our questioning, even in our uncertainty, even when we've been praying and praying and praying and asking and, and hoping God will show up and move and deliver and break through, and maybe he's slow and it's delayed and we're frustrated and we're mad and it hasn't matched the way that we think, I hope this will be really encouraging for you as we dive in. Let me catch you up. So last chapter was kind of the pivotal chapter of the story of Jesus in the book of Mark where Jesus had been doing all these teachings and miracles and profound things that he was doing. And then he he gathers his disciples together, his closest followers, and he says, hey, who are people saying that I am? And they say, oh, you're this teacher, you're this prophet, you're John the Baptist that came back to life, you're Elijah that's coming back, and and you're just this miracle worker. He's like, okay, yeah, 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 that's what everyone's saying. But what do you say? Who do you say that I am? And Peter, as Peter does, first one to speak, he's always reactionary, I love Peter, says, you are the Christ. And Jesus like, yeah, you're right. Now don't tell anybody, don't tell anybody. And so that was kind of that pivotal moment where they finally started to realize, yeah, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And then the next chapter, or at the end of that, that chapter, where Julie last week really beautifully unpacked it, Jesus kind of gave a very hard talk about, you know what it means to follow me? You got to take up your cross and you got to follow my example. You have to deny yourself. You have to maybe even lose your life to find your life. And if you're hearing that message last week and and Julie asked you, you know, who are you living for or what are you living for? There's that tension point that we're struggling with. And And so it's a really hard teaching. It's almost like kind of like thinning the crowd a little bit. Like everyone's been coming and flocking to him for just crumbs, like available for miracles and and, and healing and and prosperity and what he can offer. And then he lays this on them. Like you got to take up your cross and follow me. Take up your burden, deny yourself, deny your desires, deny your hopes, deny your dreams, deny your flesh and follow my example and be obedient to me. Even maybe obedient unto death by carrying your cross that I'm carrying to Calvary to be crucified on. Radical teaching, hard teaching. And then in verse one in, in Mark nine, he says this, and he said to them, kind of trying to build their spirits back up. Hold on, and he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. So he's like, okay, all right, you know, I'm talking to really hard teaching, but guess what? Some of you are going to see the power of God before uh, the the death in this life happens for you. And he says, some of you, which kind of is like. Like frustrating in my brain a little bit because it's like, well, why, not? why doesn't everybody have a chance to see the power of God before they die? And stuff? Like, why, why is it gonna be some people? Why is it gonna be a few people or not me? And, and, and there's that tension point. We'll try to resolve that tension as we go through the rest of these scriptures. So hold that tension point. Why isn't it that everyone will get to see the power of God come? before they taste death on this earth. And then I think he's alluding to the next thing he's about to do, the transfiguration on a mountain. I think he's alluding to that. And I also think he's alluding to him coming back. I don't know, I'm gonna spoil it for you. Jesus dies on a cross. He comes back from the grave. We'll get there. And then he's gonna reveal himself 10 different times to about 500 people or so, experts are guessing 500 or more people. And that would be the kingdom, the, the, the power of God. They would see that before they would die in this life. I think he's alluding to the transfiguration and when he reveals himself after the resurrection to a multitude of people. And so let's get to the transfiguration. Here we go, verse two. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, and he led them up to a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them, like better than Clorox. Like he is so white, fresh white, looking clean with his garments. And the purpose of this journey was for prayer. Like Mark doesn't give a lot of details. Mark is like, let's get to the point right down to it. We ain't got time to just sit here. But Matthew and Luke have the same account and they kind of piece in a little bit more details where the purpose of this journey was for prayer to connect with God, the heavenly father on this journey. So they're up there praying. And then while they're praying, Jesus is transfigured, which means his glory was shown. So like, God's glory in Jesus was hidden through his human form. And in this moment, his face shone like the sun in, in Luke it says, and, and even in Matthew it says, his clothes became white like lightning. It was just this powerful, miraculous glory, holy moment where Jesus's holiness was revealed. His glory was displayed and his human flesh was no longer holding that back. And, and Peter, James, and John are there with him watching this thing all go down. It's incredible. In verse 4, it says, and then there appeared Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. They're having a conversation with Jesus, and Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. I love Peter. He's like, you know what? It's good that we're here, because he says this. He says, let's make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, for he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. It's good that we're here, because Jesus, if you wanted tents, you couldn't do it. You couldn't do it. You're God and all. You couldn't erect a tent for you and Elijah and Moses. It's good that us humans are here to build these tents for you. A little bit of context, okay? There was an Old Testament scripture that said that during the Feast of Booths, that Elijah would come back. And there was a prophecy that Elijah would have to come back before the kingdom of God would be restored. And so Peter's probably just thinking, oh gosh, there's Elijah. He's right there. I got to get a booth ready for him because that's how it's supposed to go down in the Old Testament scriptures that he would have known. Or he's just Peter being Peter, and he just didn't know what to say, and he reacted and said, we'll build tents for you. We don't know. But they were terrified. And here's probably why they were terrified. In the book of Luke, this account, they say they were sleeping. They said they fell into a deep sleep. And and if you hang on and you get through the rest of the story of Mark with us, you'll see again, Jesus will go off to pray. He tells them to keep watch, and they fall asleep. It's a pattern. Apparently, they think prayer is boring. I'm just kidding. They're probably tired, they're exhausted from the travel and the journey being on their feet. They fall asleep and they get woken up from their sleep with this transfiguration, Elijah and Moses, and this conversation that's happening, seeing God's glory revealed through Jesus in this moment. They're in this grogginess and they just reacted with fear and wanted to build them tents. And verse seven, it gets real, it's real, real. A cloud overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son, listen to him. Underline, listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer song, saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. Now, they knew this was the voice of God because in, in, in uh, Luke or Matthew, one of those two, it says they fell on their face when they heard this. They knew. It wasn't like they were groggy and sleepy and this is happening. They go, who said that? They knew exactly whose voice that was. And God did on their face out of reverence and respect Uh, For the Holy One God and put their faces on the ground. They knew it was him and they heard God's voice and they said, This is my son, listen to him. It's incredible that they got to have that experience with Jesus on this mountain. And as they were coming down, he charged them not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what the rising from the dead might mean. I'd be so mad if that happened and you told me I couldn't tell anybody. That'd be such a hard secret, It's such a hard thing to keep. And they did it. They succeeded. They did it. They kept it to themselves until after the resurrection, and then they were going to be able to share that with the masses. But the whole entire time, it says they're questioning. They're questioning. They're doubting. They're they're uncertain. They don't know exactly what all of this means yet. But listen, Peter, James, and John got a cheat code. Any video gamers in the house, or you know, watching, like you type in all the right buttons in the right order and you unlock everything and you get all the levels and all the access, it's like a cheat code. They got a cheat code early. Like they got to see the glory of God through Jesus and they got to hear Moses and Elijah having this conversation. They heard the voice of God say, this is my son, listen to him. And they can't share the cheat code with the rest of the world until after the resurrection. But they got a cheat code. And one part of me that frustrates me a little bit is, why did they get the cheat code? Why didn't Jesus take all of his disciples? What, what, he wanted all of them to have that experience? Why did Peter, James, and John get to have that experience to kind of get that, that, that uh, extra little advantage of being confident and having faith in who Jesus saying, is saying that he is? Hold that tension. We'll try to resolve that here in a little bit too. So coming down off the mountain, when they came back to the disciples, the other nine, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes were arguing with them. And he answered them. Jesus said, oh, you faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? You can kind of sense the frustration in Jesus a little bit. He says, bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground, and he rolled about foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, hold up, I want to pause just for a second. We have this idea of Jesus, and in modern America, comfortable Christianity, as we've kind of defined it a little bit, we want to remove any uncomfortable environment, any ailment, any pain in America. We got treatments for everything. We got medicine, treatments, therapy for everything. We don't like pain, we don't like discomfort. And so then you would think that we cast this on Jesus and thinking he would be the same way where anytime there's a suffering or injustice, he immediately writes it. Anytime there's a pain or a, or a trial or a storm, he's immediately gonna make it all better. And so Jesus is looking at this boy and there's a crowd and he's foaming and he's rolling and he's convulsing and the demonic spirit has him in pain and suffering. And Jesus is like, let me talk to your dad for a minute. Let me just, let me just ask your dad a quick question right here. So he asked his dad a question. How long has this been happening to him? And so Jesus and this dad are having a conversation, and the dad says from childhood, and has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him, but if you can do anything, but if, circle that if, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. The dad is in this struggle with the boy, and you would be too if that was your kid from childhood. Like that is a burden that both of them, that entire family is carrying. And he's saying, have compassion on us. Have favor on us, have mercy on us. If you can do anything, if. Do you think that guy has got faith? He's saying, if. Think he's got faith? I think he's got some faith. He's the one who spoke up in the crowd when they asked, hey, why are you arguing? Teacher, he's the one being vocal. He's the one like, I want to bring him to you. Your disciples couldn't do it, but I still believe you can. He's got some faith, but he's still have a little bit of unbelief or uncertainty and some doubts inside of him. And this is what Jesus said. If you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. Now, meantime, he's still having a conversation with the dad and the boy's still rolling around, foaming at the mouth, grinding his teeth, under demonic possession. They're just talking over here, being real chill. All things are possible for the one who believes. And immediately the father said, okay, 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 all right, all right, all right. I believe, I do. But you gotta help my unbelief. Circle that, underline that. That is one of the most profound statements out of humility that I see in scripture from this dad whose boy is laying in the middle of a crowd under demonic possession. He's like, I do believe you, Jesus, but there are some parts of me that I'm still doubting and questioning because your disciples weren't able to. I'm not quite sure I have all the pieces figured out about you. I believe, but I have some unbelief and I need you to help me with. Incredibly humble. And here's the thing about belief. I want to just kind of get a working definition real quick. I think in in America or or in our culture, it's like we believe something is like having confidence in it. And the more we believe it, the more we have confidence in it. And so, but here's the thing about belief. Like there's no power in your belief. Let me put it this way. No power in your belief. You could believe that your plane will crash. You are not going to get to your destination. Like, you'll be terrified and scared and uncertain and questioning, and you have no belief that that plane is going to get you to where you want to go. But you get on the plane. It's a good pilot. It's a good plane. You get where you need to go. Your belief had no impact over that entire situation. The opposite would be true as well. If you have all the belief in the world, you're puffed up, arrogant, prideful, man, I got more faith than anybody. I got more belief than anybody. I've read my Bible so much. I prayed so much. I've gone to church for seven years straight and you're all puffed up. You got all the belief in the world, but you get on a faulty plane with a faulty pilot and that plane will go down and your belief had no impact over that flight. You see, the power of our belief isn't the belief itself. It's what we believe in. And if you get on Jesus' plane, and he's the pilot, and you got your belief in him and not on the actual you know, getting to where you want to go, but you're believing in the one who's going to take you where he wants you to go, that's where the power is in, is in the belief in who we believe in. The belief is the connector. It's the connector between us and us and God. But we have this idea of like, you just need to pray more. You just have to need to have more faith. You need to do enough mental gymnastics and enough creative energy to believe it to be so, imagine it to be so, and it will be done for you. But that's not how it works. We believe in the one who holds all the power. We believe in the one who can do anything, the unthinkable, the miraculous. And that's what the belief does for us. It's Not about your level or your percentage of belief and it'll be done. It's about how confident you are in the one who holds the power. And what he is and what he means to you in your life. Again, the boy is still rolling around, foaming at the mouth. And then when Jesus saw the crowd running together, this is, this is crazy. This truth for me in here is crazy. I hope it is for you too. When Jesus saw the crowd came running together, the crowd's growing, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mutant deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him up, and he arose. Here's a point I want to make. Sometimes the cross that you have to bear, the burden that you have to bear, the sickness you have to endure, the pain, the suffering that is on your life, you will have to walk through that longer than you want to. A lot of times you'll have to carry it a lot farther. You'll have to carry that cross a lot farther than you would like to. And we want God to remove it immediately. But one of the truths I see here is that God isn't, he's not, he's not, he, he, it's not the way he operates. It's on his timing for his purpose, for his plan. And I think in this moment, there was a crowd that was beginning to form and he was waiting for the right people to join the crowd or join the circle so he could do a miracle so that his love and his power could be made known to the people who needed it, to who, who he needed it to be made known to. And I see two, two types of provision. Sometimes God does a private provision just for you. Like no one, and, and he's done this. And if you've, read the, if you've been on the journey with us through Mark, he's done a, a miracle in private and told him not to tell anybody. And it was just for that person in that moment. But I see in this one where he was waiting, he was being patient and letting a boy suffer and letting the dad watch his boy continue to suffer while a crowd grew so that he could do a public display of a provision so that people could experience his power who needed to experience it in that moment. And maybe for you, You're going through something. You're carrying a cross. You have a burden that's really heavy that you want to dump and get rid of. But God's saying, stay with it. I need someone to see me through you. I need my power to be made perfect through your struggle to where someone can witness it and their life can be transformed because of what you are going through. Stay in it. Stay faithful. Stay strong. Be persistent. I'm not going to remove it right away all the time. And here's the thing. The the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians that if you have accepted Jesus, your life is no longer your own. You were bought with a price. And so if, if that price was bought for your life by him living the perfect life that you could never live and dying the death on the cross that you deserved, your life is no longer your own. You are now an instrument on mission for his purpose and his plan to bring the good news of the gospel and salvation to every single person you possibly can. That's what we're called to as Christians, as Jesus followers. And just maybe the cross and the burden and the denial and losing your life that you're gonna navigate longer than you want to may just be in God's perfect timing that someone else needs to see it. And the way you love and the way you serve and the way you give God the glory, no matter what is the light, the example that will bring somebody to know him. Just maybe that's you and your story. And he's asking you to just stay in it and trust him. But the problem with all that, Myron, I know there's a tension, there's a problem. And Peter, James, and John, they got the cheat code. They got to see something miraculous before they tasted death, right? Some of you may live your entire life carrying that burden and may never see a resolution to it this side of heaven. And I know that's hard to swallow, and I know that's hard to fathom. But your life can still be incredibly impactful to the people around you. And people can find Christ because of your faithfulness through that trial and through that struggle and through that storm. And you may look at humanity and life and go, why did their cancer get healed and mine didn't? Why did my friend's cancer get healed and mine didn't? Why is that the diagnosis for my kid and their family is perfectly healthy and happy? Why did they have financial security and I don't? Why did they have this and I don't? And we have this comparativeness about us as human beings and we look at God and go, why? And we doubt and we question and we get frustrated. And I want to encourage you to be like the man that was so humble to said, I believe in you and I will always believe in you, but there are parts of me that I'm struggling with, Lord. And I need you to help my unbelief. I need you to help me see that you have a bigger plan and purpose no matter what's going on in my life, and I will continually follow you with obedience, even though it's hard, and this cross is heavy, and this burden is almost too much for me. I want to dump it and give up. Stay in it. He's faithful, and it may happen. It may be a breakthrough, maybe a miracle, maybe the healing, maybe what you're asking for in this life. You may get to see the power of God before you die, or you'll see the power of God on the other side. And we gotta be okay. But that's hard. It's a hard teaching, I know. It's easier said than done. Verse 28 finishes up this little section here. And when he entered the house, the disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. The disciples, I got a lot of empathy for them and a lot of compassion for them. Like Jesus, a little while ago, sent them out on mission, gave them the power to then you know, cast out demons and heal people. And they were doing it. They were doing it. They came back and they celebrated. Like, I can't believe the works that we were doing when Jesus wasn't even there. It was awesome. And so Peter, James, and John and Jesus leave and they're just continuing to do what they've been doing all along. Healing people, casting out demons. And they come across one that they can't cast I'm sure they have lots of questions, lots of doubts, lots of uncertainty. Why can't we? So they want to ask Jesus, why couldn't we do it? And here's the application for us. God has wired you and gifted you in many different ways. And that is God's blessing and his gift and his grace to you that you have those gifts and those, you know, whatever it is for you, his his promise or his, his, his provision or his blessing on your life. But here's the reality, like your giftings, You can use them in the spirit on your best days or you can use them in your sin on your bad days. God will still use you as a sinner, as in sin or as living completely righteous as you can possibly be. He's gonna use you. It's not that his plan and his purpose is not deterred by you. He's going he's to use you the way that he wants you to be used. But there's going to come a time, sometimes where an obstacle, an opposition that we come across that we can't use what we've used in the past, or we can't uh, use the track record that God has been giving us or the provision he's provided all along. We come across one that's just a little bit too big, a little bit too tough, a little bit too heavy, and we can't overcome it. And the disciples finally hit one. They finally hit one, and they were doubting. Why? Sometimes there's things that we don't have control over at all. A lot of times there's things that we don't have control over at all. And the only way that we can find peace and find hope and find purpose in our pain or in our struggles in those moments is hitting our knees and praying to the one who has my purpose in mind, who has all control of everything at the fingertips and can do whatever he wants to do to fulfill his plan and his purpose. Sometimes it's just by prayer. It's the only thing that we can do. And so I got three quick points I want to finish up here. Number one, when we walk humbly and struggle in our obedience, God meets us in our doubts. When we walk humbly like the man who had the boy and said, I believe, but I am struggling with some unbelief and I'm being humble and I'm trying to be obedient, I'm trying to trust you, I'm trying to have hope and faith that you are good and that you will provide and no matter what happens, I'll still trust you and be obedient and you struggle in that, but you're humble about it, God will meet you where you are in your doubts. He'll comfort you, he'll come alongside of you. Because a lot of us have guilt and shame and we've been told or we have this idea that following Jesus is about perfection. About perfection, we gotta get it all right all the time. Here's the reality, you're never gonna be perfect. And good news, Jesus is there because he is the one who is perfect, who lived the perfect life that you could never live and died the death that you deserved. And God recognizes that as a substitution for you. And I am so grateful that he does. And I hope you are too. It's not about you being perfect. It's not about you doing all the right things. It's not about you having all the puzzle pieces put together and all the faith and all the belief and everything figured out. It's about humbly saying and struggling through the obedience of carrying that cross, or denying yourself, and living countercultural to what society is saying. Say, "I'm going to follow you, Jesus, even though it might not make sense. I don't have all the pieces put together. I'm going to struggle in my obedience. I'm going to do it very humbly, and I know God will meet you there. He's done it in the past with tons of Christians that I've talked to and their story, and my story. And look in the scripture. There's two examples I want to give us from the scriptures. John chapter 20. You guys ever heard of doubting Thomas? Thomas was one of his disciples one of his 12. And he did all the ministry. He did all the, he was walking the three, three years on the earth with Jesus. And he saw incredible things and spent a lot of time with Jesus. And Jesus dies, comes back from the the dead and he reveals himself to the disciples. But Thomas wasn't there when Jesus shows up. And so then all his best buds, Thomas' best buds, who he spent three years with doing incredible ministry, run to Thomas, say, Thomas, we saw him, he's live. And you would think Thomas would be like, yeah, you guys are my best friends. You ain't, you ain't pulling a trickster on me. Like, I, I, there's no wool. I, I believe you, right? Thomas didn't believe his best buds and said, I'm not gonna believe it until I see his hands and touch his hands and touch his side. Now do you think God said, forget you, Thomas, see ya. Even in Thomas's greatest doubt, Jesus comes back another time, reveals himself to the disciples. Thomas is there and Jesus goes, Thomas, here, touch, here I am. And Thomas touches his hands and touches his side. And Thomas says, Lord, it is you. I do believe. And Jesus says, yeah, yes, uh, because you have seen, you have believed. But Jesus says something so profound that applies to you and I. Blessed are those who don't see and believe. That's you. That's me. That's us. We don't, we don't have the luxury of them, the disciples back then, of seeing Jesus risen in the flesh. And so how much more blessed are we by faith with belief that he did what he did. He is who he says he is. And that even in our doubts and our questions, he'll meet us there. We don't have to have it all figured out. We just gotta believe in the one who holds my life in his hands and has a plan and a purpose for me. And he'll meet you in the doubt if you stay humble. Second one is, you know, Peter. Peter was locked up, Acts 12, okay, Acts 12. Peter gets locked up in prison. He's about to be executed publicly the next day. And so the church, the the body of Christ, the believers are all praying for Peter. Because if you know about Peter, he's, he's gonna be the cornerstone. He's gonna be like the, the cornerstone in which the church is built. He's gonna be the rock that the church is built on. So their leader is gonna be executed. They're all praying like crazy, praying like crazy. And, and all night they're praying and all of a sudden a knock happens at the door and Rhoda, one of the servant girls runs and peeks through the people and freaks out and goes, oh my God, it's Peter. And she's so excited she forgot to open the door and she runs back to the group that's praying and says, guys, 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 Peter's at the door. And they're like, no way, that's impossible. Can't be Peter. No, seriously, it's Peter. Well, it's probably his ghost. He's dead. We should stop praying. It's over. Like if they had full belief that their prayer was actually going to do what they wanted to do, they all would have ran to the door. But God's got grace for them because they were humbly struggling in obedience of trying to do what he's calling them to do. And and one of my favorite verses is God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And if you're cynical and you're arrogant and you're proud and you think you got more faith than anybody and you're kind of like the Pharisees where it's all about you and legalism and doing all these X, Y, Z and right things, I don't know if God's gonna show up when you have questions. I don't know if he's gonna meet you there because he opposes the proud. He's in war against the proud. But over and over, there's an abundance of grace for us if we will just stay humble and struggle with our obedience and say, this cross is really heavy. I'd rather get rid of it, but I'm gonna try with everything that I have to believe in you, help my unbelief, and help me follow you with everything that I got. Second thing, second point is we always get what we need. We won't always get what we want. We always get what we need, but we won't always get what we want. You know, if you're like me, you're really good at disguising your wants as needs. I'm really good at it. Like I I can come up with some pretty good prayers and logical rationale. And I think I can convince God pretty good that this want is a need and then I plead for it. And then he sees right through because he's God. But I think I'm sly and slick. And we miscategorize our wants as needs all the time. I need this. I need need a bigger house. I need more money. I need a different job. I need a husband. I need a wife. I need a boyfriend. I need a girlfriend. I need this. Those are all good things. Yes, they are but you don't need them. You know what you need? You have separation from God because of sin. You need a savior and a solution. That's all you need. And if you recognize that and you accept the free gift of Jesus, you'll have everything that you'll need. And the the scriptures say that he will provide everything that you will have need of. And when you stay humble and you stay hungry and you honestly pursue him with everything that you have, I know your heart will begin to align with what he says you need. And you'll begin to see what you need. And you'll begin to live and walk in that direction. You'll get what you need. You won't always get what you want. Sometimes you get what you want, but you're always going to get what you need. See, Peter, James, and John, they needed something on the mountain of transfiguration. They did. And this isn't probably, you know, uh, this is my thoughts. You know, this is Myron commentary, my thoughts. The reason that Peter needed that is because Peter was going to be the cornerstone, the rock, was gonna lead this movement once Jesus had left. He was. So Jesus was probably giving him a little extra cheat code of confidence and belief of like, I need you because I'm gonna to leave to continue this thing on and it would explode across the known region and all across the world eventually. The other one is James. James would go on to be the first martyr, the first one publicly executed for his faith. He needed that confidence and assurance that it's okay. It's okay to be killed for me, it's okay. And then John, he was going to see the whole thing through. He was going to live out. He was the only one who wasn't going to be martyred. And he wrote the book of Revelations and a few other epistles uh, in the New Testament. And he was kind of going to see the whole thing through until the, all the disciples were gone. They all needed that. Is that fair? Is that right? That they got that cheat code and, and, and God gave them that? Probably not. And so we're begging and we're asking God, why not me? Why them and not me? And I hope that we can be encouraged that even in our doubts and uncertainty, we don't have it all put together. We don't know why some do and some don't. We will approach him honestly on our knees in prayer with humility and say, help my unbelief. And the final thing, number three, doubts don't disqualify you from following Jesus. Doubts don't disqualify you from following Jesus. Let's look at this, Luke 17, okay? The apostles are asking Jesus like, hey, how many times do I have to forgive my brother who sins against me? Seven times? Jesus says, no, 70 times seven. That's 490. I got a math degree. I know math really well. 490 times. And they're like, whoa, increase our faith. Like, that seems impossible. How can we do that? They had doubt. They had questions. Like, I can't believe you would even call us to that high of a a standard. Increase our faith. And then he goes on right after that to say, well, faith as big as a mustard seed can move a mountain. You don't need more faith, Jesus is saying. You need more obedience. You need to just trust me. The voice from the cloud on the mountain said, this is my son, listen to him. You just need to listen to Jesus more. You just need to follow him and be obedient to him. You don't need more faith. You have enough faith. You need to have more obedience. And so my question to you is don't be the guy, or my statement to you is don't be the guy in the dinghy. Having a predetermined path of like, God, if you do this, this is the sign that I need, then I'll follow you. Then I know that you're real. When all along he's been pursuing you with a boat and a cruise ship and a helicopter and time after time after time he's trying to provide and give you what you really need. You've just missed it because you've been selfish, arrogant and prideful and filled with your own motivation and asking God for a sign. And all you really got to do is just come to Jesus. Even in your doubt, uncertainty, don't have it all figured out, but with humble obedience, keep following, keep believing inviting him in to kind of connect the dots where it's unclear and you're frustrated because here's the reality. Sometimes we think we are pursuing God, but really he's been pursuing us all along. You just happened to finally find each other or he found you and you just answered and said yes. And the Bible says from the foundation of the earth, he is, he, he's known you and he is calling you to himself. And he has sent so many things your way and you've explained it away or you've justified it away. You've given some logical, rational reason of why it is what it is. And you haven't given it the credit that it's due that it was Jesus providing for you in a way you didn't even see coming because you had your own selfish, prideful, arrogant thought of what you needed before you would give your life over to Jesus. So who is Jesus to you? Who is this guy to you? What are you living for? And will you respond to his invitation of pursuing you and wanting to be in a relationship with you to save you from your sin because you can't do it on your own. And you might never have all the pieces quite figured out. I don't know if I'll ever quite have all the pieces figured out. There's a lot of things in scripture that are hard. But believe that he holds the power. He holds a plan. He holds the future for you. And if you walk humbly in obedience to him, I know he'll meet you in your doubt. Let me pray. Jesus, I thank you that you do pursue us constantly. And I pray that people would be receptive right now, that they would respond to that invitation, that they would give their life over to you and, and they would just say, Lord, I have doubts, help my doubts. Help me overcome my unbelief. I believe, but help me, help my unbelief. With great humility, we would begin to walk and continually pick up that cross for that burden or, or that pain and, and you would show us the purpose in our pain and that the gospel and, and, the, and the good news of Jesus would just exude from us through our, through our pain through our struggle, through our suffering, you would be made famous because of us and the faith that we have. Help us to be more obedient, stay humble, and pursue you honestly with everything that we have. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for joining us here at The Vineyard. It's our greatest desire to see you find and follow God, and we hope that this podcast has helped you do just that. For more video messages and content, make sure to visit our website, vineyardwheeling.com, or download our app. Again, thanks for joining us this week. We'll see you next time.